Gracious Almighty God, we praise you and we glorify you. And we thank you, Lord, for your word. Indeed, Lord, your word is truth. And we pray that even as Jesus prayed, that you would sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. Indeed, O oh Lord, we long to be made more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We long to be those who are conformed more and more into his image. And we pray that as we look at your word, at the words that Jesus spoke about being salt and light, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would indeed strengthen us, encourage us, and help us to be resolved to live for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 5, verses 13 through to 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. What does it mean to have influence? What does it mean to have influence? Well, to be influential or to have influence means to have an impact or an effect on someone or something. And this parable uh, that we're looking at this morning and really, in reality, it could in one sense be two parables, two images, is all about the influence that Christians have on this world. It's not about whether or not we have an influence, for we all influence someone or something to varying degrees, but it's about what kind of influence we'll have on those around us, whether good or bad. In John 17, Jesus said we are to be in this world but not of this world. We are to live and breathe and work and serve and, and do many things in this world whilst not being of this world and not loving this world, this sinful world that we see around us. But the thing is, our lives are so often the book that the world reads about Christianity. If they don't pick up the, the Bible that they may or may not have in their homes whether they have darkened the door of a church before, often our lives are the book, as it were, that the world around us, world around us reads in what we say and in what we do. And in Matthew chapter 5, just before our passage from this morning, Jesus has just given the Beatitudes, which are qualities, which are fruit that his people should produce. They are non-negotiables, that Christians, when they're saved, should show. And now we're going to see the effect of this fruit on the world around them, in the world around us as believers. And in this parable, Jesus uses two main images, salt and light. One is negative and one is positive. One stops something and halts it in its tracks as much as possible. And one gives something and sheds something, as it were. It gives something. It's positive. And as we'll see, the world needs both. It needs both salt and light. As John MacArthur says, the world needs salt because it is corrupt, and the world needs light because it is dark. 
And as we look at this parable this morning, we're going to see that Christians, through their works and their words as well, they're to both preserve and attract the world through their obedience to God. That as salt and light, they're to both preserve this world and attract this world through their obedience to God. And as we look in, in these verses here, in these four verses, we're going to see firstly preserving the world as salty salt. And in verses 14 to 16, attracting the world as obvious light. But first we have preserving the world as salty salt. Have a look with me at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. The first thing we see about salt and this this nature of salt is that Christ's disciples are the salt of the earth. Not will be the salt of the earth, they are the salt of the earth. It's present tense. The same thing later on in, in the light of the world. They are the light of the world, not will be. It's not something that Christians have to measure up to so that they can achieve it somehow. No, they are the salt of the world and the salt of the earth, and they are the light of the world. Just like Christians are saints, and yet they grow in holiness. They are righteous in, in God's sight through Jesus Christ, and yet they still put on righteousness and put off sin. The thing is, it's put in the present tense there because Christians have this fundamental identity. And Jesus is calling them to live up to the identity which they profess. They are to live up to their already present identity. Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the earth, so then act like it. You are the light of the world, so therefore shine as that light. It's not an option. You claim to follow me, Jesus says, then you are to be salty and you are to be bright. Why did Jesus use this picture of salt and as I said in the, in the kids' talk before, we often think about taste. And that's, that, that's kind of the prevailing use that we have for salt right now, is, is taste. It takes a bland dish and makes it a bit nicer. It takes an already nice dish and makes it even, even nicer. And the Jews at that time did use it for seasoning. But there's an even more important use in, those, in ancient times that they used it for. And it was to act as a preservative. In the ancient world, salt was even more valuable. I don't think we even understand it now, but salt was even more valuable to them than it was to us now. It was sometimes scarce, and it was always expensive. In the ancient Near East, salt was frequently used in the binding of a covenant. And where both parties ate salt together in each other's presence and in the presence of witnesses, and that eating of the salt would give the covenant even a further witness, even further authenticity. In Leviticus 2.13, in all the offerings that the Jews were to give to God, every single one of them was to have salt with it. In Roman times, salt was so valuable that often they paid soldiers in salt. The word salary that we use in English comes from the Latin word salarium, which in turn comes from the word salt. And so salt was a very valuable commodity in these times. At a feast uh, in, in Roman times to sit above or below uh, the salt on the table 
was often according to one's rank. And that's where we get the, the, the phrase to be, wor- uh, to be uh, worth one's salt. Salt was a very big deal. And that's one of the reasons why is because they didn't have fridges. We have artificial preservatives. We have bucket loads of artificial preservatives. We have fridges, and praise God for fridges and freezers. Because if we leave some meat out for a few hours, or we leave food out, some food just sitting there, eventually it gets rotten. Eventually we don't feel safe to eat it. And salt was used to slow down the corruption of food in those days and to preserve it. And this metaphor is used by Christ to indicate that Christians, through their lives, are to be those who preserve the world and stop its decay. Because that's this very fact that we have, this this implication that they are to be salt, is that the world is corrupt. Ever since the fall in Genesis 3, in the Garden of Eden, mankind is corrupt. It's in a state, mankind's in a state of ruin and misery. It's not getting any better. In fact, it's getting worse. As Sam read out for us in in Noah's day, in Genesis 6, it says this, in verse 11 and 12, it says, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And that word corrupt there means to be spoiled or to rot. It's like fruit left out on your bench for weeks on end, which starts to decay and rot and grows a bit of fungus or a bit of mold. It's disgusting. Do we eat it? No, we chuck it out. It goes straight in the bin. It's no longer fit for use. It's no longer fit for consumption. But it's only fit for the compost or for the bin. But in Genesis 6, it wasn't just some people who were corrupt. No, it says it was the whole earth. It was all flesh on the earth. In Psalm 14, verse 3, it says that all, man, all mankind have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. When we look around us, we can be tempted to forget this. Because we have so many medical and technological and scientific advances. But even with all those advances, the world fundamentally hasn't changed. The world is corrupt. In one sense, it just gets smarter at being corrupt. It gets smarter at hiding sin. And there's nothing, no matter how many medical advances that we have, there's nothing it can do to stop that corruption. It cannot stop it. It cannot slow it down. And that is why it is necessary that Christians are salt to preserve the world from corruption. And so not only have we seen the very nature of salt, the importance of salt, or the corruption of the world, but we've seen the preserve, we're going to see now the preserving of the world. In Genesis 18, if you remember the account, God brings Abraham to look over Sodom and Gomorrah. He shows Abraham what he's about to do. He's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. What does Abraham do? He pleads with God again and again and again. But why is God going to destroy Sodom? In Genesis 18, verse 20, it says, For the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. 
The iniquity of Sodom and Gomorrah had corrupted that region of the world so much that that very region cried out against Sodom and Gomorrah. So this corrupt world cried out even more against the corruption of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in verses 26 to 32, God promises Abraham multiple times that if there is even 50 righteous people in the city, he will not destroy it. But isn't it a sign, a condemning sign of sin, that God has to promise increasingly smaller numbers, first 50, then 40, then 30, 20, and even if only 10 righteous are found there, God will not destroy that city. Yet we read in that account that God does destroy that city because there were not even 10 people who were righteous there found. But God said, and it's important to know that in that account, God said that on account of the righteous, he would not destroy the city. It's on account of the righteous. Because of the righteous, he would not destroy the city. Righteous people preserve cities. Righteous people preserve nations. In Jeremiah 5, God tells Jeremiah that even for one faithful believer in Jerusalem, he will forgive the city. He, he will not bring temporal judgment upon them. For even one righteous believer in the city. But not only do righteous people preserve the city by God graciously withholding and holding back his judgment upon them, but they also preserve this world through their righteous deeds. They prevent the world from descending into further depravity. Throughout the Bible, when there are godly, faithful believers, nations benefit. Sin is curbed. Corruption is held back. And you see it even in the account of, for example, the time of the judges. What a sad time that is. But the only, the only light that we see in that dark book is when the judges are alive. And when there are a few righteous people in Israel. And yet as soon as those righteous people are gone, like that, they turn back to their wickedness and idolatry. In the book of Kings and Chronicles, 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, it's when a godly king is in power that, that, that the cult prostitution is done away with, with high places where there was worshipping to false gods that was, they were taken down and idols were smashed. But as soon as the next king comes along, who is not righteous, who is not faithful, they go back again to their wicked deeds. And the same thing happens, has happened in the West. The only, thing, the only reason why we've enjoyed such peace and prosperity in that sense is because our society and our laws have been founded in some respects at least upon a Judeo-Christian heritage, upon the morality of God's word. It's not Christianity, but in some sense has leaned upon the ethos of the Bible and the morality of God's word in some, in some respect. And the same goes for Christians themselves. When revivals have broken out, Whole nations can be turned around completely from serving Satan and from serving sin. What's God, what God's word is saying is this. Through the faithful and godly lives of his people, God uses them to restrain the corruption and sin of the world around them. Now, one grain of salt doesn't amount to much. But when there are many grains of salt... There is a big difference. What would, for you, what, what would this look like? Well, for those of you who work, this is often seen in your workplace. When you're working around those around you, even though it's hard at the moment working from home, 
Even on, even on Zoom, we can have an impact. But I don't know whether you've noticed, if you work in your workplace, that, that if people know you're a Christian, sometimes they hold back what, the things that they're going to say around you. Maybe they're about to swear and they catch themselves. Maybe they're about to blaspheme God's name or the name of Christ and they hold it back. Or maybe they intentionally stop or don't tell a crude joke that they were going to tell. Maybe because you've entered the room. And in one sense, they might see you as a bit of a party pooper. Even just by your very presence, without you even saying anything. The way you live your life matters. Or maybe it's a decision that your company has between a wrong, unethical, sinful decision and a good and righteous and good decision. And maybe you have an influence over that decision. And maybe even if you are the only one voting against everyone else because you are voting for what is right, even then your, your influence can be seen. Likewise, parents, you have a wonderful privilege to restrain corruption in your children and to be salt to your children. You have the authority, a God-given authority, to restrain sinful behavior in your children and to promote what is good and right. This is through preventative discipline and through training as well as corrective discipline. It happens through many regular times of family worship and also through many times of the day when you, when you speak to your children, even through the very mundane things throughout the day. You have, in every facet of life, the privilege of, of being salt to your children. Or children listening, or, or teenagers listening, even though you may not be Christians, your parents are striving to, to show you what salt and light is like. And even then you can seek to honour God through the way that you live. And maybe that's with, with uh, school children or your friends around you. Even then, if you don't choose what they choose, if, if what they choose is bad and you choose to go the opposite way, even that, even that reflects the salt and light that Christians are to have. And so through the lives of his people, Jesus is saying that they are to preserve the corruption that is in the world. And God has given us all opportunities, whether small or great, in order to be salt in this world. But there's a warning Jesus gives in verse 13 of unsalty salt. A warning in verse 13. Have a look with me. He says, but... If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Because there is some salt, at the time Jesus was saying, there is some salt that was fake salt. It looked the part, and yet it was often filled with other minerals like um, it was often called gypsum or, or there were other materials that it had that showed over time that it was not really true salt. It was not pure salt. And so that salt could become useless when the rain washed it out over the years or even over months. And in the same way, for those who claim to be followers of Christ, 
if they lose the saltiness that they claim to have, they show that they were never true salt to begin with. It's like the rocky soil or the weed-infested soil which Jesus spoke about in his other parable of the sower and the four soils. It looks fine for a short while. right? It tastes salty maybe for a short while, but it loses its saltiness. And speaking to the crowds around him, Jesus was calling them to assess the state of their hearts because false salt and false professors, those who claim to follow Christ but do not truly know him, they don't stop the corruption of the world at all. And the Bible says there that they are not good for anything. This word good means to have power over something or to prevail or to even be healthy. And what Jesus is saying is they're not good for anything anymore. They have no power to prevail over the corruption of the world. In fact, they don't even have power themselves to stop themselves from being corrupted. And the warning is this, that if you claim to be salty and you are losing your saltiness and you completely lose your saltiness, your profession is false. You cannot restore yourself to salvation. So I ask you this morning, are you true salt? Are you true salt? Because you may be masquerading as salt of the earth, but you have no effect on the world. Instead, instead of preserving the world and stopping the corruption, instead you add to the sin and corruption of the world. Because let me tell you, you cannot make yourself salty again. You cannot make yourself salty again because you were never truly salty to begin with. You cannot change your nature. And let me warn you, even as Jesus did this, this morning, if this is you, your end is to be thrown out. It's to be discarded and to be trampled. Because on the final day, when all secrets are revealed, when all empty professions of faith are shown to be false, Jesus is saying that you will be discarded. You will be thrown out. You will be trampled forever in the fires of hell. There is no hope. There is no hope on that final day if your profession, profession is shown to be false. If you lose your saltiness completely, you'll be thrown out and trampled forever in the wrath of God in hell forever and ever. So I call you this morning, if you are masquerading a soul, and even if you have no claim to be solely at all, regardless, run, run to him who can make you truly salty. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn away from your saltiness and the corruption of your heart. And run to God in repentance and faith for mercy. But not only are Christians salt of the earth, but they are to be lights of the world. And so we come to our second main point this morning. We are to attract the world as obvious light. Have a look with me at verses 14 through to 16. It says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. As Christians are salt of the earth, so Christians are the light of the world. 
present tense. It's a, as I said before, it's a fundamental part of their identity. And this idea of light is a bit easier for us to see. For a light is designed to allow us to see something that would otherwise be hidden. A light allows us to see something that would otherwise be in darkness. A light is designed to make something visible and seen. But light, just as salt presupposes corruption, Jesus, by saying light, presupposes darkness. In Proverbs 4, verse 18 to 19, there is a, a contrast given between the righteous and the wicked. And it says, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. In the Bible, darkness often means two things. It often signifies ignorance and a lack of knowledge. And it signifies sin. And so light in the opposite effect means truth or revelation. And it means holiness and righteous. God is light, the word says in 1 John. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. In Isaiah 59 verse 9 to 12, Isaiah speaks about the widespread sin of the people of Israel. And he says, Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like, like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday, as in the twilight, among those who are vigorous, who are like dead men. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. There is a reason that this world is described as darkness, because this world is blind to the truth. And this world loves its sin, and that's what darkness is. And they're ignorant, and so they need the, revelu- revel- the revelation and truth of the gospel. And because they are sinful, they need the righteousness and holiness of Christ, which is offered in the gospel. Let me say that again. The world is ignorant, and so they need the revelation and truth of the gospel. And they are sinful, which is why they need the the righteousness and holiness of Christ, which is offered in the gospel. In John 8, verse 12, Christ said this about himself, and you'll know it well. He said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is truly, inherently, the light of the world. He is the one who shines brightly, brightly in the darkness of this corrupt and spiritually blind world which, which loves its ignorance and sin. He intrinsically is the light of the world. He came to offer and to reveal the truth about the way of salvation and to live a perfect life and die a perfect death to be, to be that way of salvation. See, he not only came to reveal the truth about that salvation, but he came to live and die and rise again to be that way of salvation. He, in every sense, is the light of the world. In verses 26 to 30 of John 8, I want you to notice the words and works of Jesus. He says, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. 
So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Jesus came into this world to both speak and to do. Jesus is the light of the world who spoke to the truth that he received from the Father, as well as he doing the things that are pleasing to God. What a perfect light Jesus is. What a perfect light Jesus is because he revealed a truth that is without error. He revealed a truth that was without imperfection at all. And he revealed the only way of salvation by which mankind can be saved. And not only did he have a truth to tell, but he backed that up with the way that he lived and the way that he died and the way that he rose again. Because he did everything perfectly. He was without sin, the Bible says, and he committed no sin, and neither was deceit found in his mouth. It says that as a high priest, he was holy, innocent, and undefiled. He was undefiled. He was uncorrupted, even though he lived in this sinful world day after day after day. Is he not truly the light of the world? Is he not truly the perfect light of this world? And so here we have this beautiful identification that Jesus gives his followers. He calls them the light of the world. Can you see how closely we're being identified with Christ? How unworthy we are of it, and yet how closely we are. Jesus is identifying with us. In fact, all those who are in Jesus are to be light, and they are light of the world. In John 12, 36, Jesus says, While you have the light, i.e. Jesus, he says, Believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. Indeed, all who trust in Jesus are sons and daughters of light. In Ephesians 5, verse 8, Paul says this to believers, You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Do you get that? Your identity is as children of the light, as sons of the light. You were formerly darkness, but because you are now light of the world, walk as that light. And so for all those who are in union with Christ and who have a new nature, they are also lights of the world. And we derive that light from Christ. We reflect that light by our union in him. And like Christ, we are to shine the light of truth with our mouths and we are to shine the light of holiness and righteousness in our deeds. But I want you to have a see, look here at the qualities of this light. Have a look at verse 14 and 15. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a cover or a basket, but on the stand, on its stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. What do we notice about this light and the city? In fact, Jesus even sneaks another um, image in here of the city. And as we see these qualities, we will see that as those who follow Christ, they should be seen in us. Well, the first thing is that this light is designed for a purpose. There is a reason that we've used light ever since the creation of the world. There is a reason we, reason we have torches and lights and lamps. And we've got torches on our phones and we've got, we've got lights in buildings. There's a reason for a purpose. And a city that Jesus uses here wasn't just built anywhere for no reason. It was strategically designed and built for a purpose. 
And in the same way, God designed us and redeemed us for the very purpose of being lights to the world. It was not arbitrary. God is never arbitrary. No, it says we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God both predestined and called us to be lights in this dark world. But not only are we designed for a purpose as lights, but as lights we're to be obvious. We're to be obvious. It says the city on a hill cannot be hidden, i.e. it's in plain sight. It's pretty obvious. It's on a hill. It's not in a valley or or a deep, dark jungle tucked away from the rest of the world and hidden it's not the mythical city of Atlantis, which no one can find is buried under, under um, depths of ocean. In the same way, a lamp. It's not put under a cover or under a basket. That would be silly. It's unthinkable, right, to put a light under something, right, to, to turn on a torch and then cover it completely so that it does absolutely nothing at all. When our torches stop shining... Or our room light stops shining. What do we call that? It's broken. Right? If, if, if one of the lights in your, in, in your living room goes off, it's broken. Do you just leave it there and, yeah, it'll be all right. No, we, we, we go out and we buy another bulb and we replace it. Or if all the lights go out, we wonder, what on earth is going on? Right? They're not working properly. Lights are meant to shine. They're meant to be obvious. And because it's obvious... They are meant to shine light to all. When we put up a light for a room, we don't kind of put it in a corner down at the, like, the bottom of the wall you know, or, or, or maybe you know, behind a couch at the same time. No, we put it in the centre often in the room so that it gives light to as much as possible. It's meant to be as obvious as it can be. And so Christians are meant to be obvious. Matthew 5, 16, in, in this chapter, in verse 16, it says... In this passage that we're looking at, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul encourages Timothy to be godly and to correct, uh, sorry, and to correctly conduct the worship of the church of God. And in verse 15, he said, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Because if the Bible's witness is if, if you're not shining any light, then you're unsaved. If you're not shining any light, then you are unsaved. We tend to shy away from making these assertions, but John doesn't. In 1 John 1, verse 6 to 7, it says, If we say that we have fellowship with him, right, with God, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We lie. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And I want to ask you this morning, is your light obvious? Do your works and the words which you you say show that Jesus is your Lord? Do your family, friends, workmates, even sometimes those at the shops, do they see the good works that you do and do they hear the truth that you say? There is an account about the holy life of a Scottish minister called Robert Murray McShane. He was a a minister in in the 19th century. And there is an account of a cynical woman in in Alexandria on one of his travels. 
And this, this cynical woman was complaining about the hypocrisy of, of the church, of, of every Christian. But when someone who heard her asked if she had met just one Christian whom she re- could regard as a genuine man of God, she replied, yes, I saw one man, a minister in this hotel, a tall, thin man from Scotland. He was a man of God. I watched him and felt that he was a genuine Christian. His very look did me good. In the same way, it is sad that all she could see of of Christianity was hypocrisy. But when our lives match up to our profession, when our lives show forth the truth of God's word, people should instinctively know that there is something about us Something about us that's different from them and from others around you. It should be obvious, and that's what Jesus is saying. But not only uh, is it designed for a purpose, not only is light, um, uh, not only is light up to be obvious, but it's for the benefit of all. Because the light and city are not only obvious, but they're designed for that visibility for a purpose. That they will be there for all to see and to look at and benefit from. That city was placed on a hill intentionally for safety, for a sign of hope or strength or visibility for trade or whatever it was or, or a beacon for hope. It was placed there to, be ben- to benefit all. And notice it's what it says of the lamp. It gives light to everyone in the house. A lamp doesn't pick and choose who it wants to see the light. Everyone sees the light. And so we are to be obvious with our works and our words to everyone. That all, not just some, not just a few, not just one person, but all would see the light. We're to be consistent in our character. We're to be consistent with our words and our lives. How we respond to COVID is an important witness of how we view God, how we view government and the priority of the church. We're to be lights to those around us to whom we're struggling. And we're to help them. We're to be, be there for them. And it's been hard during lockdowns. But very soon, those lockdowns are going to start to lift, even from tomorrow. And we have a privilege, not just a duty, a privilege to be salt and to be light, to be there for others, to care for them, to give to those who are in need. And even as we come back to church next Sunday, Lord willing, how we love one another is a witness to the world, as Jesus says, How we love one another is a sign that we are his disciples. We're to care for each other. We're to encourage one another. We're to instruct one another. We're to to be hospitable. We're to pray. We're to share the word. And our good works are to be evident to all. But what is the result of this light? Is it praise for us? No, it's praise for God. Because the result of this light is that it attracts those who see it. An obvious city and an obvious light tend to attract others. A city set on a hill is visible from many kilometres away and is more likely for travellers to go to who cannot see other cities which may be tucked away. And if your room doesn't have a working light because it's broken, right? you need to work because it's night time, it's 9pm, you're trying to work, you go to a room that has a working light. And as we shine our light, our light is meant to attract others to us. But ultimately, to God. 
Because ultimately, they're not meant to come to us with shining light. They're meant to come to God. Light shines on something to show it. And the light or the good works of God's people is meant to shine the light on, God, on the God behind those very works. In Matthew, in the, in the, in the next chapter, Jesus warns his disciples not to shine their light before others as hypocrites do, not to be seen by others, but they're to shine their light before others, yes. And sometimes they will do it in secret, as it says in Matthew 6. But when we shine our light before others, it is to be obvious, not so that we do it to be seen by others for our own glory, but to give glory to God, not for their approval, but for God's approval, not for glory from them, but glory to God. As it says in verse 16, it says that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Because the very purpose, ultimately, of this light is that it would, um, as we speak the truth of God's word and as we live out the truth of God's word, the, the, the final aim is so that people would be attracted and that they would come and be saved, and that God would get all the glory. And this doesn't mean that everyone will come, because there are some, as God's word said, who hate the light and do not come to light, lest their works be exposed. But this is the very purpose of the light, that those who hear our words and see our works would come and be saved, and that God would use that witness to draw people to himself. For indeed, a bad witness, as it was said of the Jews in Romans 2, because of their sin and their hypocrisy, God's name was blasphemed among the nations. But let our witness, as we live as salt and as we live as, as light, not cause the name of God to be blasphemed, but cause the name of God to be glorified and honoured, as God uses our witness to bring people to him. And so I ask you, are you being preserving salt and are you being obvious light? Because we are called to be salty salt and obvious light, whom God uses for his glory. Let's pray. Gracious Almighty God, we pray that you would help us as your people to live up to the identity that we have in Christ. We pray that we would live as salt because we are the salt of the earth and that we would live as lights in this dark world because we are the light of the world in Christ. We pray, precious Lord, that our words and our works, that our lives, Lord, would show forth the truthfulness of your word, would show forth your glory and your grace we pray, precious Lord, even as lockdowns start to lift, even as we come back and even as we go back to workplaces and, 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 and other places in society, and even as we come back to church, that we would be faithful in showing forth what it means to live as your people. Oh, precious God, for those who are unsafe, for those who maybe falsely profess to be sold or falsely profess to be light, oh Lord, we pray that indeed you would convict them of their sin and their hypocrisy, that indeed, Lord, that you would help them to flee that hypocrisy and that they would uh, run and turn from their sin and turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, precious Lord, for those who know that they're unsaved. Lord, we do pray that indeed you would deepen this conviction in them and then you would help them to see the lives of 
the believers here at Jermoyne Baptist, that they would see those lives. They would see the attraction of your word. And we pray, precious God, that you would draw them to yourself and help them, Lord, to turn in repentance and faith to you, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.